0: Two weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians, um, where Paul, was, Paul calls the church to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, one of the things that we noted from that passage was that it is evidence of the present working of the Holy Spirit in the community of believers to generate new songs unto the Lord. And so Doug, Crystal, Rich, thank you for sharing the spirits working in your heart in that last song that you just shared with us this morning. Let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. We have been following in Ephesians what Paul instructs as how to live a Spirit-filled life. He gave this command, be filled with the Spirit. And then he's been giving multiple instructions about what that actually looks like in areas of forgiveness, in areas of how we speak to one another, in areas of dealing with our anger and bitterness, in the ways that we conduct ourselves. He says, be filled with the Spirit, in the ways that we... Sing songs and the ways that we worship and the ways that we submit to one another, be filled with the Spirit. Paul now gives some very specific instructions describing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in the roles that God has placed different Christians in their life. And so we turn here to Ephesians 5 21 to 33, this passage that focuses on the marriage relationship. And so we're examining. What a spirit-filled marriage looks like. This is part one. Next week, we're going to be having the Atlantic City Mission Trip Report, and then the following week, we will have part two. Point of it is that there being a part one and part two is that the two go together. And so if you listen this week, you need to listen again in two weeks, and if you listen in two weeks and your someone's like, oh, that was the second part, you can refer them to this week. And Just a reminder, you can podcast our messages. They're also available streaming on our website for you to listen to wherever you are in the globe. And so you can find those there. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 21 to 33 this section here on marriage Paul devotes three verses to the instruction for wives and nine verses to the instructions for husbands we're we'll focusing on God's instructions for a spirit-filled marriage particularly to husbands here today and if you're not a husband why do you need to listen to this message well it's because either because you are married to one you will be married You have children who are or will be married or because you know someone who is married and God has put you in their life so that you would know what his picture of marriage is like and how to encourage people in that ideal. Now, a specific word here for those of you who are wives is that to listen today with the attitude of not, the attitude not being, man, I hope he's listening, but rather, listen with the attitude of, how can I make this a joy for him? How can I make this a joy for him? So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word this morning. Father, we ask that you would indeed send your spirit, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that we would be filled with the spirit, that our hearts and our souls and our mind would be open to the instruction of your word, that we might know your love more deeply, profoundly, and more intimately, and Lord, that your love and that your spirit would change us to love. As you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love. Love is the most unromantic idea. It's a rather shocking statement. I was shocked when my counseling professor based a whole section of our course on marriage and family counseling, on this idea that love is the most unromantic idea. And it's rather shocking, is it not? I mean, because as a country, our country waited with bated breath this past week as Rachel Lindsay, the bachelorette, who was on her journey to find true love, finally offered the last rose to Brian, who got down on one knee and asked her to marry him. Her journey of true love that has gone on for millions, has millions of dollars, has been spent on it. And now that they are engaged, the country waits with bated breath whether or not this true love will last to the end of next month. (laughs) All wondering. True love. In the Greek, both in the biblical usages and ancient Greek literature, there were three words that could all be translated as love in the English language. There's the word eros, which refers to an emotional or passionate or erotic love. There's another term that was used that Greek philosophers charged husbands that husbands were to love their wives. But the word that was used was a weaker word of phileo, which is a brotherly love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it wasn't until the teaching of Jesus Christ and the example of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the New Testament that the third type of love, agape love, came into existence. Agape love means it is a selfless love, a love that is given for the benefit of others and not for the benefit of yourself, a love that is a love that loves for their sake and not to gain it in return. And while agape love may be unromantic in the idea of giving it, when it is received, it is extraordinary, and it is life-giving to a relationship. So, as Paul gives these instructions in Ephesians chapter 5, the word that Paul uses here is agape, to have An agape love, the way that Christ has loved us, husbands love your wives. And that is as love with a sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul, here picking up on this theme that is throughout Scripture, that God characterizes his covenant relationship. His relationship between God and his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as a marriage covenant. That God has bound himself in a marriage covenant to his bride, which is the church. Jesus Christ embraces this idea in his own teaching and refers to himself as the bridegroom. And through the teaching of the New Testament, we understand that all of history is moving towards the day when a glorified church will be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we will join as the church, as the bride of Christ, we will join in the marriage supper of the Lamb in the fullness of history. And in each of these images throughout Scripture of the relationship between God and his people as a marriage covenant, what is emphasized in each of those portraits is the sacrificial, steadfast, covenant love of God for his bride. The sacrificial love of God that is given for the benefit and for the beautification of his bride. It's a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love that is the love of Calvary, the love where God in Christ Jesus left His throne on heaven, left the glory, the comforts, the praise and honor of heaven and entered into this world as a servant, setting all those things aside so that He could be beaten and stricken and afflicted So that a spear would be thrust into his side and nails through his hand to a cross. Sacrificial love as he suffocates to death for his bride. Sacrificial love is the love of foot washing. Where Jesus instructs us that he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's sacrificial love. It is a love that is saying, I am entering or I am in this marriage covenant not to be served, but to serve. Christ Jesus, who is the head of the church, before whom and to whom all authority and power has been given, sacrificed everything out of love for his bride. How counter the culture the biblical view of marriage is. How counter the culture how the Bible counters the traditional notion of marital authority. For around the globe and throughout the ages, people engage in marriage in a form of patriarchal domination. But the Bible shows a picture of marriage where the husband loves, as Christ loves the church, where the husband, who is the servant leader, is married to give sacrificial love to another, who is married not for her to sacrifice for him, but rather so that he may sacrifice for her. Now, to those of you who are young men who are men who are not married, just gives you practical counsel is to marry someone that you will find joy in serving and sacrificing for all of your days. And if you're not ready to make that commitment, you're not ready to get married, and you're not ready to get married, or the benefits associated therewith that some might assume. To love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Certainly, there is no higher standard. Certainly, it is a standard that is impossible to attain, for anyone to attain. But, when any husband, filled with the Spirit partially fulfills this idea of loving his wife as Christ loved the church, when any husband partially fulfills that ideal, what happens is that he breathes the love of Christ into his marriage, and he breathes the love of Christ into his home, and he breathes the love of Christ into his family without saying a word. And he brings Christ's love as he demonstrates Christ's love in his home. The love to love with a sacrificial love. But there is a purpose for the sacrificial love. It is to love with the sacrificial love in and of itself, but also to love with a sacrificial love that results in a sanctifying love. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy ...and without blemish. That Christ died for his bride, the church. He sacrificed not just to save her, but to sanctify his bride. To sanctify means to make holy. It means to set apart for God and to set apart for God's service. Now, of course, husbands don't sanctify the way that Jesus does. Nor are we morally superior, like Jesus is morally superior to every one of us. But a sanctifying love... It's to love sacrificially in order to cultivate the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of your bride. It is a love that strives and seeks and is earnest about promoting her spiritual growth and and her Christ-likeness. It is to love her as Christ loved the church, to love her in a sanctifying way so much so that what happens is that within her, the work of the Holy Spirit grows and blossoms. That the love of the husband works in such a way, being filled with the Spirit, that what happens in his bride is that she becomes more loving. That she becomes more gracious. That she increases in peace and patience. That she increases in gentleness and kindness and self-control. That she increases, in what Scripture describes as the fruit of the Spirit, that these things grow in her life because of the sacrificial love of a husband And that sacrificial love of the husband results in a sanctifying love where the work of the Holy Spirit grows and develops within her so that she increasingly knows and reflects Jesus Christ in her life. Sanctifying love is not the instruction of one who purports himself to be morally superior to one who is deemed as less. Not at all. Rather, sanctifying love is the sacrificial love of someone who has so experienced the love of Christ themselves that they sacrifice for their beloved so that she would know and increasingly reflect the love of Christ in her own life. Paul gives some instructions how this occurs and the result that hopefully is achieved. To love her... As Christ loved the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. As Christ does this for the church, this is certainly a reference to baptism and also to the centrality of the word of God and the gospel as found in the word of God. For husband, what does this mean? It means that Christ Jesus needs to be evident in your marriage, that the word of God and the gospel needs to be central in the home. Now, I know this idea is very intimidating for a lot of men. Um, It's intimidating for a number of different reasons, but what is needed here is not profound insight. What is needed here is not to have all the answers. Rather, what is needed is a diligence and commitment to knowing God through His Word. A diligence and commitment to knowing and experiencing the love of Christ personally and in your marriage and in your family to, in an increased way. It is a diligence and commitment that Christ would be the center of your life and the center of your marriage. Why? Because that's what a sanctifying love does. It's the Spirit of God working as he fills his people, working in their relationship, working in them with the goal that they would become, that as Christ would present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, a pure, spotless bride, that she would be radiant and glorious, a sanctifying love that promotes the well-being and the glory of his bride as the way Christ has done that for the church. What this means is that sanctifying love does not point out spots or blemishes. It does not point out wrinkles, whether of the body or of the soul. A sanctifying love views your spouse, views your wife as she is in Christ Jesus and as she is increasingly in Christ Jesus and as she will be in Christ Jesus as the new creation that God saved her and redeemed her to be. It's a sanctifying love that works to make her radiant and glorious, that longs for her to be freed from everything that would spoil her, everything that would put a blemish on her, everything that would inhibit her from being a glorious and radiant and beautiful in Christ Jesus. A sanctifying love that is determined to not let anything diminish the work of the Holy Spirit in her life. But we do diminish our wives? We do. As Brian Chapel observes, he says, we must recognize that making wives question their beauty and encouraging them to be dowdy is one way that some husbands exercise control in their marriages. But that is contrary to Christ's example. We diminish our wives and our marriages when we do not tell our wives of their beauty, both external and internal, as part of our rejoicing in what God has provided. And I would add that we diminish our wives and our marriages when we expose their faults and don't cover their blemishes. We diminish our wives and our marriages when we embarrass them with their failures and don't remind them of their beauty in Christ Jesus. We diminish our wives and we diminish our marriages when we enslave them to the demons of their past and don't affirm that they are new creations through the gospel. We diminish our wives and our marriages when we measure them by worldly standards or by unbiblical family standards. And when we don't affirm, That they are bestowed with worth, dignity, and value because of who they are as a daughter of the King Most High. I know this personally. I know it personally because of the way the sanctifying love of Christ works in my own life. That the sanctifying love of Christ never crushes me. It never exposes and embarrasses me. Even when there's some raw things, it never makes, the sanctifying love of Christ never makes me feel insignificant or belittled or worthless or degraded or incapable. Quite the opposite. The sanctifying love of Christ is is gentle, it's kind, it it makes me want to honor and please him. This is the sanctifying love of Christ is given to me. I mean, I mean, he sacrificed himself for me that I would be set free from all that would inhibit me, that I would become everything that God created me to be, that everything that God has redeemed me to be, everything that God, who is now presently at work in my life and will bring to completion, will glorify in me to be. It's the sanctifying love of a husband that will build her up That she might achieve her full potential. That she might flourish in the grace of God that has been bestowed upon her. Sanctifying love given so that she will become her true self and know the fullness of God's grace in her own life. And so it begs the question for husbands to ask ourselves, Is our wife more like Christ because she's married to us? Or is she like Christ in spite of us? That is she more like Christ because she has personally experienced the love of Christ coming through us as her husband? Is she more like Christ because of that? Or is she like Christ because she has, to, she has been forced to cling to the love of Christ despite her husband? May we love as Christ has loved us. It does give some practical advice for single ladies. What are you looking for in a husband? Someone like you hear over and over again in our world and the media and the bachelorette and what have you. Are you looking for someone that will make you enamored with yourself? May you look for someone who has been enamored by the love of Christ. May you look for someone who is so enamored with the love of Christ, so amazed by the love of Christ for him that it overflows into his relationships and overflows into his relationship for you. To love as Christ loved the church, with a sacrificial love, with a sanctifying love, and with a selfless love. Look at how Paul describes it. He says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, Jesus Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, which is his body. People naturally nourish and cherish their own body. I think Paul gives this example because when you talk about love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is this high and lofty ideal. It's a little bit hard to understand in some regards. We get it, but we don't get it. And so he gives this high ideal that should be diminished in no way, but rather should be upheld. At the same time, Paul says, let me give you something really simple to understand. You know how good you are at loving yourself? The way that you are so good at loving yourself, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. It's important to note that Paul doesn't call husbands to say, you know what, as many today would say, in order to love your wife, you really need to do a better job of loving yourself. Rather, Paul's saying, no, you instinctively know how to love yourself. In fact, not only do you instinctively know how to love yourself, but you do it quite well. And rather, in the many ways that you love yourself, that is the way that you are supposed to love your wife. Now, lest to be thought of something new, Paul is just simply giving a marital articulation of Jesus' words that you would do other to others as you, would, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And Paul's summary of the law, For the whole law is filled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean, as Paul charges husbands? Is love your wife as you love yourself. Love your wife as you do your own body. Love your wife as you cherish and nourish it. So what this means is just as you desire and long for and seek to cultivate intimacy and joy and respect and health and personal well-being and peace and companionship, ensure that your wife is receiving those things. Just as you would like to relax and kick back and take it easy for the night when lots of things are going on and all things are breaking loose, see to it that your wife gets to relax and take a break. Just as you earnestly think about how you want to get your desires met and how you earnestly want to get your wants satisfied, see to it that you are earnestly thinking about how to satisfy the wants and desires of your your spouse. Because it's rather simple. If you love your wife, you're loving yourself. Paul states this not as a motivation, but as a simple reality. It's in your best interest for you to love your wife. And that if you want to love your wife more, if you want to love yourself more, love your wife better. With a selfless love. You already know how to love yourself. Show that love to your wife. Now, as Paul describes this in these different aspects of a sacrificial love and a sanctifying love and a selfless love, Paul then flips what is often contrived as the purpose of marriage. You see, people enter into marriage thinking that marriage is about themselves and about their relationship, and people think that marriage is, it is a private institution between two people. And Paul takes this idea and he flips the whole thing upside down to a much more profound and glorious picture of marriage. He says this Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. It is a profound thing when a husband and wife get married. It is a profound thing that Paul is identifying. He's laid out here, the two become one flesh, not simply referring to the union sexually of two people, but the union of one soul and two souls that God takes together and merges as one when they become married. But what Paul says, this mystery, the one that you are thinking about, the profoundness of marriage, this mystery is profound, but I'm telling you it's about Christ and the church. What he is identifying here is saying, "Your, your marriage isn't about you, it's about Christ. Your marriage isn't for you, it is for Jesus Christ. That your marriage is to reflect the mystery of Christ's relationship with the church, with his bride, the church. What this means is that your marriage is not a private institution, but rather is a public institution, a public image of the beauty of Christ Jesus and his relationship with his bride, the church. The high calling that you have in your marriage is that people would see your marriage, that they would look at your relationship and say, you know what, this whole sacrifice that Jesus did some years ago that's still presently applied in my life that I don't keep completely understand, I didn't understand that until I looked at the way that you as a man loved your wife. That when I saw the way that you sacrificed for your wife, that gave me an understanding of what Christ does for the church. That when I see the way that you two interact with one another, when I see the love of Christ for his people and the people's love for Christ, when I see the love of a husband to his wife and a wife's love to his husband, when I see, how, how, when I see your marriage dynamics, I can see that Christ's love truly is sacrificial and sanctifying and selfish. By looking at your marriage, it's true. I want to know Jesus more by looking at your marriage. I have seen the love of Christ work in your relationship, and I want to know that love that comes from your Savior. Now I'd venture to guess at this point, it's probably one of two questions that might be, you might be feeling. One of those questions is, well, how do I do this? That would kind of be the natural question. How do I do this? And the answer to that is be filled with the Spirit as we've looked at over the last multiple weeks. And If if it's unclear what that means, I'd be happy to share that with you. But I would venture to guess that there is another question that you are feeling a lot more strongly. I'd venture to guess that for many, as we have looked at the sacrificial love and the sanctifying love and the selfless love of Christ, that if you're a husband that probably within many of us, there has been a tension that has been developing. It might even be a resentment. It might even be a resigned acceptance. A resigned acceptance of, okay, I get it, I just need to shut up and grit my teeth and bear it and grind on and press on. I don't have any other excuse but to do that. And the question that is driving that feeling and that tension and that resentment, the question that is driving that is this, okay, we hear all these things about husbands and sacrificing and loving sacrificially, but what about me? What about my needs? What about my wants? What about my desires? And what Scripture would say is that if that's your response to this, you need to know the love of Christ. Like, seriously. Like, you need to know the love of Jesus. You need to look to Jesus and the love that he has bestowed upon you and offers to you in the gospel. Because if you are looking to your spouse or you are looking for your spouse to satisfy within you only what Jesus can give you, If you are looking for your spouse to satisfy something that is missing within you that can only be satisfied through Jesus Christ, what will happen is that your marriage dynamic will devolve to a daily negotiation. A daily negotiation of saying, okay, I get it, I get it. I will love you. I will love you. I will love you selflessly. I will love you sacrificially. I will love you in a sanctifying way. I will love you in these ways because that is necessary in order to get you to love me back. And in so doing, that love is you're not loving them for their sake, you're loving them for your sake. You're not loving them to show the love of Christ. You're loving to get something from them. And if your marriage devolves to this mutually agreed, upon, mutually agreed upon, a tacit contract of mutual self-gratification and mutual self-satisfaction, and we want to get together and we want to get married because we mutually gratify each other in such a, such a way, and we mutually love each other, and if I love this person enough, I'll get love back for them. What happens is that when you feel that you're getting the short end of the deal, you will be tempted to say, I'm out. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I'm I'm looking for, for in marriage. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for a sacrificial love. I signed up to be sacrificed for. And I'm willing to sacrifice if they are too. And so again, your sacrifice really isn't a sacrifice. It's being offered to get something in return. But what the gospel does is something completely liberating. Because if you know the love of Christ... not just in in your head, but if you are rooted and grounded in love, if you have been rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ for you, in his agape love for you, if you have grown in comprehension, if you have grown in understanding what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, if you have not only grown in understanding that, but that you have begun to know the love of Christ, that is not just a matter of head knowledge, but the love of Christ that surpasses understanding, that cannot be explained. The love of Christ that comes through a dynamic personal relationship with the real person of Jesus Christ. That if you know that love, which fills you with the fullness of God as God's spirit dwells within you. That if you know the love of Christ, what happens is that showing the love of Christ is not a burden, but a joy. And suddenly the tension of the question, well, what about me? What what, what about me? What about about me? Is the tension of that goes away. It is replaced by a, a freedom A genuine freedom. A freedom that's like, oh, I feel so good. A freedom to love and to love joyfully and to love sacrificially and to do so because you have been loved so profoundly, so intimately, so infinitely by the love of your Savior. That when you know the love of Christ, not just intellectually but experientially, when you know the love of Christ personally, what happens is that being filled with the love of Christ, it becomes a joy and a delight to love your wife in the way that you have been loved so extraordinarily and so extravagantly. There's a renowned theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. He was a professor for 20-plus years at Trinity University uh, Trinity University and Seminary outside of Chicago. There for 20 years, and um, he served on faculty with D.A. Carson and Doug Moo, and if you don't know those names, they're kind of like the American gladiators in the seminary world. Okay. Uh, some would say they're like the SEAL the Team 6 of seminary professors. kind of weird, but it's the way it is. And he was served there for 20 years, had a very prominent position. And also during that time frame, his wife developed and suffered from fibromyalgia, a disease that causes pain in many muscle groups for which there's no known cure. And so she started having a very difficult time walking upstairs, had a difficult time doing housework, being unable to do housework. They as a couple prayed for this for many years. They tried everything, tried different doctors, but there was no relief. And what was worse is that her pain that she experienced was aggravated by cold weather and also by humidity, two things that Chicago, was, Chicago excelled in. And so, some friends invited them to Mesa, Arizona, where they had a vacation home. And as they would go out there for vacation, they began to learn that the warm and dry climate was wonderfully helpful for his wife. They made several trips there, and eventually found that they were able to ride bikes together for the first time in 12 years. And in doing so, Wayne Grudem told his bride, he said, I would like to move here, but there are no seminaries here. And so a few days later, he was flipping through the Yellow Pages, and he found Phoenix Seminary, which he had never heard of, which is unusual for a theologian not to know what the other seminaries are. And he called the school and he asked if they would had any openings. Of course, the school was interested to have a world-renowned person like Wayne Grudem be interested in their school. And so after much thought and after much prayer and pondering this, and in particular pondering the implications of Ephesians 5:28 and 29, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever cherishes his own body, but nourishes and nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. As he was reflecting on that, he said, if I were suffering like Margaret, would I not want to move for the sake of my health? And the answer was obvious. But Margaret didn't want to move. And she didn't want to move because she knew that her husband had an influential role at a very large and prominent institution, and he was in the dream job of any professor. And so there they were. He wanted to move out of love for her and for her sake, and she wanted to stay for his sake. So finally, when the Phoenix Seminary offered them a position and offered him reduced teaching loads so that he could write more, his wife thought, Well, oh, this would be really great. That's a wonderful incentive. And they began praying about this. And eventually, Margaret said to her husband, I'm going to trust you to make the decision. And in the end... She followed the loving leadership of her husband, who made a great sacrifice in order to nourish and care for his bride. What a remarkable picture of being filled with the spirit in a marriage relationship. Another remarkable example, I posted it on our Cornerstone's Facebook page yesterday. Story of Robertson McQuilkin. I've played it here before. If you want to see the clip, it's on our on our Facebook page. And it's the remarkable story, just the tear-jerking resignation of McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia International U- University, he was, which was on a meteoric rise in success and influence. And he stepped down at the height of his career because his wife had come down with Alzheimer's and was tough, suffering terribly. Some days she knew him, other days she did not. And so he resigned, and he said that it was a great joy for him to do so. He said it was actually one of the easiest decisions that he's ever made in his life, to step down so that he could care for his bride, who, in short order, wouldn't recognize him anymore. And McQuilkin went on, after his wife's passing, became very prominently known for this very moving speech that he gave and for the sacrifice and love for his wife. He was asked to write a book on it, he was asked to speak on it regularly, and eventually McQuilkin himself came down with cancer and was dying. And as he was dying, he was talking with his oncologist about his life, and he said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. He says, I don't get it. He said, wherever I go, people talk about like this great sacrifice that I made for my wife. And I don't understand why this is so remarkable and so amazing. When I got married, I took a vow to love my wife for better, for worse, and sickness and in health till death do us part. What's the question? This was the easiest decision that I ever made. And the oncologist, who regularly deals with dying people, responded and said this. It's remarkable. Because almost all women stand by their men, but few men stand by their women. And Paul calls us as husbands, as men who call upon the name of Christ, and I know not all of us here are Christians, but Paul calls us as husbands to be filled with the love of Christ, to know the love of Christ so deeply so intimately and so profoundly, and to be filled with his love that we overflow with joy to love the gift that God has given to us in the bride that we have married. Let us pray. Father, I praise you that there is nothing that you call us to do that you have not already done for us. And there is nothing that you call us to do that you do not empower us by your Spirit to accomplish. And so, Father, I do pray for myself, for, the, for all of us here, that you would fill us with your Spirit, that we would show the love of Christ. That we would know the love of Christ and be satisfied by it. And by being filled with the love of Christ, that we would show the love of Christ. Lord, I pray that for us husbands that we would love our wives not to gain love but because we have been loved by you and that our love would be pure and not manipulative. It'd be pure and not a contract. That our love would be genuine because your love for us is so genuine and so sacrificial and so selfish and so sanctifying. Lord, we ask that we would comprehend the height and breadth and width and depth of your love and that we would know your love in a way that knowledge and understanding cannot explain but that is experienced profoundly in a relationship with you. Lord, would we know that that we might love joyfully and freely and well. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.